It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Special edition. I forewarned uh, you as the audience before we started that uh, this is a little unusual. You know, so this particular Daily Thunder is going to be released tomorrow morning. So it'll be our Monday edition, but actually it's not happening Monday. It's happening Sunday night. The reason we're doing this, and I'm saying this more for the podcast than for those of you that are staring at me right now here, is uh, because we have an alumni summit, and this is the opening sort of message to kick off uh, the week for us, where we are focusing on a theme of revive. And there is something very, very significant uh, that is needed in the Church of Jesus Christ today, and that's exactly it, what we would call revival. It is a deep need that many of us resonate with. It is something that has been very present and forefront in our longings for the church, especially over this last year of dearth, of uh, seeming deadness, where it's like, hey, church, church of Jesus Christ, hey, guys, you still awake there? You want to slap it in the face? Hey, guys, come on. It needs a resuscitation. It's like a sleep or something. Come on, guys. And we've even seen the effects on us, slight paralysis uh, in our own lives where we know that we should boldly go into this culture and speak, and yet with all the awkward things that are happening in our culture, it becomes very difficult to engage. You guys remember when masks first were being put on? Very difficult. Like, how do you talk to someone now? Because the main communication vehicle you have is your mouth. And, and their mouth, and like talking to someone is actually, it really helps to not have one of these crazy things on. And it actually hindered our ability to function. And a lot of us sort of went into our little turtle shell during that time. And so just as a, a framework for all of us, I think it is so critical that we catch the vision of what the Holy Spirit is desiring to do in us as individuals and as us as a body. Okay, now... The reason this is a special edition, it's happening at a different night than usual. It's also sort of a, an unusual setting for a Daily Thunder. I mean, a Sunday night for a Daily Thunder, this is odd. But I am continuing my series on Alfred the Great, and some of you are literally stepping in out of nowhere, and you're arriving at episode 16. And you're like in, in the Middle Ages, all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, wait, I thought we were in the year 2021. I'm like taking you back to the Middle Ages. Any of you that have been following the series, it's really been fun. I have people that are so fascinated with Anglo-Saxon history, and they're looking up poetry and all these things, Anglo-Saxon everything. And that's not necessarily my goal with this. I have become extremely interested as well. And to be honest, I was never that interested in it. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien became very fascinated with this time period. And rings are very, very important, which is fascinating in the entire storyline. There's a territory in the island of Britannia between the cities known as Middle Earth. You know, there's like these fascinating things like, huh. And however, the reason I've been sharing about Alfred has very little to do with the fascinating historical dynamics. It has to do with the parallel that is set up in his life with what's going on in our world today, specifically our nation. You see, there is going to be an invasion of evil into this island, which was a Christian island. It is broken up at the time of Alfred the Great into seven nations. It's called the Heptarchy. And this evil is going to invade. And really the reason why is because Christianity is like forgotten and forsaken. They have a Christian heritage, but they've turned a blind eye to it. They've taken it for granted. 
And now this evil is going to encroach, and it's called the Vikings. And the Vikings are going to swarm in 865 AD over this, this country, or over this island that we know as Great Britain now. And it is a very dark season. And so when we're looking at it through the lens of Alfred, who at the time of the invasion initially is not even the king, he's the son of a king, and his older brother is going to take uh, the ruling command and be the king when they first hit his country, which is known as Wessex. So Alfred is going to ultimately become king of Wessex. I know I'm skipping a lot here. For those of you that have followed the story, like, whoa, whoa, you're moving way too fast, Eric. However, my goal isn't to just tell the entire story of 15 previous episodes. It's to really cut to the chase and get to where we're at right now. But Alfred is going to become king after his older brother dies because of a battle wound because of the Vikings. And he is going to inherit the worst possible situation that any king may have ever in all of that island's history inherited. And that's saying a lot because Winston Churchill in the year 1940 is going to inherit a situation that no man would ever want to inherit either. And it's a parallel. And so I went through World War II last year, and boy, I can't help but see the, the parallels between all of these things. This one island has had a lot of things similar to my own life and my own soul and this country that we're in. And what you're going to see is the man named Alfred, who could have, for all practical purposes, spared his life and done it in dignity. He should have left when Wessex was overtaken by the Vikings. The entire island at one point in time was totally overtaken by the Vikings. There was no hope for a Saxon to push back. At one point in time, it got that dark. And, and he, Alfred, is on an island, on a swamp island, living in hiding. And he has just a few men around him. And literally, his nation has been overtaken by evil. This man should get out of town for all practical purposes. Europe would welcome him, and he would find covering and protection there. And it would be reasonable because if the Vikings were to catch the king, they want the king. If they get the king, they will sacrifice him in this devilish sacrifice unto their god, Odin. And no king wants to go through being cut into pieces. You know, the various things that can happen to you and be sacrificed to a, you know, a, a demonic uh, you know, end. And uh, that's just not what any of us would prefer. The fear over this whole matter was so tremendous. And yet Alfred will not leave. In fact, he doesn't just stay, he fights back. And there is no possible way that this guy can win. I mean, if we were to look at it on paper and we were all betting people, we'd be like, oh no, there's no way I'm betting with Alfred. And yet we wouldn't be telling his story, right, if he's gonna fail. And so I'm skipping a lot of good stuff here. But where we're at in the story, Alfred has retaken back Wessex and he is doing something that is changing not just his little locality, but he is actually taking his authority that he has been given as a king, and he is fully utilizing it to change the nation in which he lives and to solve the problems of how the Vikings got in in the first place so that it cannot happen again. So here we are. We are in a state of Viking invasion. As the church, that's a pretty good way of saying it. As a nation, we don't have Vikings. We have Viking ideology. We have ideology that is sweeping into our country, a political correctness that is coming in is trying to cow us into submission. And if you know what's good for you, you will remain silent. And when you remain silent and you begin to give way to this Viking ideology and it makes you passive in regards to the evil around you, the enemy has won. 
And you might hold your private belief in Jesus Christ, but the enemy is one. You are no longer a threat. You are crossed off the list, taken care of, dealt with, solved. You see, you are a threat as long as you remain as Alfred remained. You may be on a swamp island for a season, but you know who this island belongs to. You know that this is God's territory. And when you start with your own life that way, and you say, this belongs to Jesus Christ, and I am not going to be cowed into subservience to any evil power. And so if there is an area of your life which is still being ruled by the devil, take it back for Jesus Christ. This is called revival. This is what it always historically has been. It's taking back God's territory. It's sort of setting that flame afresh in place that we would burn for Jesus Christ and not just try and be on good terms with the world a little longer. It's like, you know what, I really don't want to pick a fight. You're having the enemy pick a fight with you and you're just you know, backing off and saying, oh, no, I, I, don't, I don't want to fight. This is a light and darkness issue. This is a life and death issue. It is not picking a fight with a human out there. It is picking a fight with those that God defeated on the cross. Those spiritual powers that are bullying you into submission need to know that you belong to Jesus, you are clothed in Jesus, you are empowered by Jesus, and Jesus has defeated them. And it's just high time that we remind them of that. Okay, so I don't know if that gives you a little background of where we're going. Look at that title, guys. That is a, that's an Eric Ludi title if you've ever seen one. The Return of the Saxon Swagger. Oh, I even want to swagger across the stage when I hear that. I mean, that's just good. I, I really like the word swagger. I love redeeming words that have sort of been lost. Like swagger, you can never use it in a positive sense. Well, I, I really like to use it in a positive sense. This is a positive sense right here. So I received, now this isn't the greatest picture. I wish I could have scanned this, but this is actually one of the guys that's even in this audience right now, Jericho Rose, uh, drew this for me. Now this is giving us a little hint of the island of Britannia at the time. And you can see not all of the nations, uh, but you can at least get a little of it. And the Wessex down in the bottom uh, bottom left-hand corner, uh, just below Wales and just left of Kent, is Alfred's territory, okay? So in, in the beginning, uh, the, in 865, the Vikings are going to come into East Anglia, then go up to Northumbria, then come down through Mercia, and then sweep into Kent and Wessex. And they're going to ultimately, you know, hold sway over this island for a bit of time, and then Alfred is going to begin to push back. And I don't want to give any spoilers away, but, you know... It's pretty obvious in history, but the Vikings are ultimately going to be purged of the, at this entire island, and it's going to become one united island. It'll become known as England, thanks to a man named Alfred the Great. So this is another picture that was drawn from me. I, I want to say it was given to me yesterday or the day before, maybe it was the day before on graduation, from Zion Schaefer, who's also part of the semester. So we have a lot of artists in that class, and you can tell what they were doing when I was talking. They were like... <laughs> but, you know, we don't really know exactly what Alfred looked like. We do have some statues. Whether or not they looked exactly like that, or he looked exactly like the statues, I don't know. But he took this from one of the statues, so that's sort of fun. And that's one of the main defenses they had at this time was called the shield wall. And so they would overlap shields, and that's how they would fight. It's called the shield wall. It's a very, very powerful dimension of their culture and even very meaningful to those of us that have gone through this series. So I'm going to go, and we're going to lay a foundation for an idea here, okay? And I'm going to call this the adoption of Mary Jane Middlebury. 
it's a made up name. Okay. I just made up the name. It sounds like a cute little girl. Okay. And however, look at my subtitle, that little varmint just beat up another kid at school, stole the teacher's purse and then ran away again. The reason I'm saying this is because I've been in the adoption community for quite some time now. And I remember when we were first entering into the issues of adoption, I remember hearing about adoptions that would fail and where someone would bring some, a child into their home and then it became so difficult for their home because of the dynamics of adoption that they would actually return the child. And for some of us on the outside, we can't even fathom that happening. I mean, oh, that would be so harmful to the child. Yeah, but once you've been through adoption, you actually understand why that happens. Now, whether or not it should happen, that's, that's a great question. Uh, just like in this situation, you have Alfred inheriting a very, very difficult situation. It's sort of like basically all of Wessex is saying, hey, uh, here you go. Are you ready to adopt us as your child? And he is adopting Wessex, which is not a pretty sight, okay? At the time, Alfred is going to receive Wessex as, and I'm putting quotes around this, his child. It is a nightmare situation. I remember going down to uh, Florida, and I met with this couple down there that was working in front lines in adoption, and just a very, very precious couple, and they had a daughter, and uh, this daughter was, you know, even when I was meeting with them, they, you know, they had the, the, the daughter sitting there and then uh, the daughter would do something and create havoc even in our meeting. And they would sort of look at me like, I, I, I'm sorry, uh, could you please sit still? And then they would get back. And I, I began to gather these things together. It was interesting because they, I don't even know when they finally told me that this little one was adopted. Okay. And we're going to call her Mary Jane Middlebury. But it's interesting because many of us, especially when we've adopted someone, we want to clarify up front. It's like, by the way, this child is not of my DNA, okay? I'm really not responsible for all the rascally behavior, all the rudeness that's coming out. I have nothing to do with that. If they were of my DNA, they would behave completely different. <laughs> and yet what I noticed from this couple is that they fully identified with this little girl and they called her their own. They didn't give all the caveats of she's adopted. I found out that she was adopted, but I was actually rather shocked at first when I was finding out she had terrible language. <laughs> it was rather shocking for this little girl. I mean, she was probably 11, and I'm like, whoa. And uh, found out that you know, the police had just gathered her from down the street the other night because she ran away. And she has a problem at school. She keeps getting kicked out of schools, and they're working on their fourth or fifth school. Meanwhile, they're not telling me that she's adopted. Isn't that interesting? And I've never forgotten that. Because in, even when I finally did pin him down on this, the dad, I remember saying, I'm actually very impressed with how you've approached this. He said, me and my wife decided up front that if God was willing to identify with us and not make excuses for his kids, that I was willing to do the same for this little girl. And, or if I could say, for Mary Jane. And that means a lot to me because when you're in the adoption worlds, you can really understand why you'd want to make caveats and God's in the adoption world. And yet he gladly associates with us, which is a remarkable statement. It's like they're adopted. They're not biological. I just want you to know. <laughs> the resolve to not run away, just a sec guys, the resolve to not run away from our unique assignment. 
So all of us have been given a unique assignment. We could call it a Mary Jane Middlebury. And it's very easy for us to complain about our unique assignment. I don't know if you've figured that out in your life, but you have a tendency to look over the fence and see someone else's assignment, and you're like, you know, if I had their assignment, my life would be so much easier. But God, why'd you give me this one? And yet you have grace for your assignment, not for theirs. They have grace for their assignment, not for yours. We have a tendency to look at the cross that God has assigned to us and do a little grumbling about it. And, you know, we think that if we were to swap out crosses with someone else, that it would be easier. When in actuality, if you took someone else's cross, it would be heavier. Even if it looks lighter, it would be heavier because you don't have grace to carry that cross. You have grace to carry the cross that God has given you to carry. And so as a result, we should save all this energy that we spend in complaining about what we wish was different instead of actually doing what we see Alfred do in his unique situation. It's one of the reasons I'm so deeply inspired by his life is because there's no bemoaning, there's no complaining. He is inheriting something far worse than Mary Jane Middlebury. And he is going to identify with it, he's going to lay down his life for it, and he is going to see it completely altered. So it may seem unfair, it may seem too difficult, but this is your unique opportunity to prove the power of God. Now, I can't speak for you. I don't know exactly what your unique Wessex is, but I have a hunch. There's a few of you in here that have had some bubble thoughts lately about how difficult your life is. And I just want you to allow God to pop that bubble. And for him to remind each of us afresh that this is our opportunity. This is not some punishment. This is our privilege to serve God in the way that he has uniquely assigned us. You see, Alfred the Great is going to go down in history as the Great. By the way, that title wasn't in his day and age. People didn't come up to him and go, hi, the Great? He wasn't addressed that way. He was just known as Alfred. However, hundreds of years later, he is going to be looked back upon as truly one of the greatest men that ever lived. And that's in hindsight. And oftentimes in our life, we're not going to get the title The Great associated with us either. However, are we living lives worthy of such a moniker? Where in the generations to come, they could look back and say, okay, circle that. That's the way we should live. When that person was dealt a challenge, look at how they responded. Boy, they had impossible situations. I mean, that was, there's no way out of that one. How are they going to respond? Whoa, look what they did. That's our privilege to showcase to future historians how it's supposed to be done. We have that opportunity right now. So how did Alfred find Wessex? I'm not exactly sure that I like the way I phrased that because it makes it sound like he's poking around and going, huh? oh, hey, what are you? And he's like, I'm Wessex. And we're like, oh, hi, Wessex. So it's not how did he find it like he was poking around and then he suddenly discovered it. But when he inherited Wessex, what was it like? How did he find Wessex when he adopted Wessex? What, what was it like? So there is a statue of Alfred in Wantage and... There's an inscription on it, and I'm giving you part of the inscription. I'm taking out some of the good stuff in it so that you know, we can sort of build a case here. I don't like giving too much away in the very beginning. And so listen to what it says. Alfred found learning dead, education neglected, the laws powerless, the church debased, 
the land ravaged by a fearful enemy. Thank you, God, for this wonderful child named Mary Jane Middlebury. It's like, why do I get this out of, I mean, to be a king is a wonderful privilege, and there's seasons of peace. If you study history, you'll notice that some kings inherit peace. Some inherit what Alfred inherited. In fact, what Alfred's going to inherit is one of the toughest things that any king in history has ever inherited. He inherited a Christian nation that has forgotten Christianity. It has all the moorings of it, but it has none of the power of it. And ironically, if you were to think about what you've inherited in this time period, you've inherited something very similar. You just happen to not be a king. And so, but the way he is going to respond is something that I want you to be inspired by. So I'm going to break down these five things. Alfred found learning dead. And so in this inscription, it's going to say what he did about it. And so I'm just going to let that sort of hang because on the screen it says he, and then I have dot, dot, dot. What did he do? What did he do? If you found learning dead in a culture you were in, I mean, what would you do? Would you just go, oh, it's dead? Would you just throw up your hands and say, oh, this is a tough situation. Learning's dead. Education neglected. What did he do about it? The law's powerless. So if the laws are powerless, you have a disorderly society. What's he going to do about it? The church debased. Wow. That one gets me upset. What's he going to do? And that's, of course, what the inscription says, but I don't want to give that away just yet. The land ravaged by a fearful enemy. Oh, what's Alfred going to do? So how did your king find you? Now, here's what inspires me about all of this, is you know, we can look at Alfred and we see a human, but that human is only, only should be praised to the level that he is modeling something greater. The reason I'm inspired by Alfred is he ta he's taking a kingdom pattern and he's applying it in his life. Because the king of the universe, known as Jesus Christ, is going to come and he's going to inherit a middle Jane Middlebury. Did I say middle Jane? <laughs> well, you guys don't need to listen that closely. Uh, a Mary Jane Middlebury, he's going, to he's going to adopt. And yet this is a really bad situation. What he's adopting is not very pretty, guys, Okay. So how did our king find us? Jesus found me dead in my sins. So then I have after that, he, and then dot, dot, dot. He did what? Well, if you know the gospel, you know exactly what he did. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. He is literally going to stand in my place to rescue me. My spirit man was totally neglected and covered in cobwebs. You know that one spirit man, that holy of holies inside of you, where the Holy Spirit was intended to dwell? It's like cobwebs, totally evacuated. He is going to come and find a house that was designed and built for his glory, totally absent of the power, the presence of God. What is he going to do about it? Is he just going to say, oh, it's too bad? He is going to do something about it. So what I want you to do is catch a vision here. It's a Christ vision. Christ, of course, is God Almighty, right? So he's going to come and you can say, well, yeah, he could do something about it. He's God. And yet Christ in you, the hope of glory, you are clothed in this very work of Christ. You are empowered with the very spirit that raised him from the dead, not so that you could just stare at the cobwebs and go, oh, that's too bad. But when you look at Mary Jane Middlebury in your life, you say, the Lord is after this. 
and you don't stop pursuing it until there is transformation. You don't allow those cobwebs to remain. The law was powerless to lift me from my unrighteous living. So he fulfills the law. The vigor of my soul was destitute of drive and desire to change. That's a sad state when Eric Ludy could even have the kingdom of heaven stuck in front of me and I have no desire for it. It's like a, a well, for me, it would be like a chocolate shake. I was going to be saying like a steak dinner in front of me, but it's like someone sticking a chocolate shake. Have you ever been so sick where even your favorite food is like, <laughs> and you have no appetite for it, for it? That's us in sin. We don't even desire the good things that God desires to give us. In other words, we are so dead that we don't even crave the chocolate shake. How could Eric not go after that chocolate shake or that venti iced chai with seven pumps? How could he not go after it? I, don't, I, I wouldn't actually drink. <laughs> How about this one? Number five, my life ravaged by a fearful enemy. Oh, no. Did God give up on me? No. He said, that's my son, and I love him and I'm gonna rescue him, even if it costs me my life. Okay, so there's a pattern there that you're going to see Alfred implement in his life. He is going to risk his life to save his country. And yet his country isn't that beautiful. To be honest with you, it's rather ugly at this day and age. Okay, it's not a pretty situation. I'm not saying that the rolling hills and things like that weren't pretty. I'm saying the country itself was not that lovable. It was illiterate, it, had, it was debased, it was immoral. It had lost its fire for God. And this is what Alfred is going to inherit, just as we are inheriting such a broken system. So how did you find your Wessex? So we'll place, replace Mary Jane Middlebury with Wessex. You all have inherited something. You're not kings and queens but you still have a responsibility. God has given you something just as he gave Alfred. It just might be a little smaller in size, and you could say praise God for that. Technically, you really don't want Alfred's assignment unless God has given it to you because you need grace for that. You have grace for your assignment. It's your cross. So how are you finding your Wessex? So here's my Wessex. Eric found his generation ignorant of truth. Boy, is it frustrating. You see, even when I was young, there was more of a soundness and an understanding of a Judeo-Christian idea. Okay, even when I was young, did you know that the businesses didn't work on Sundays? I'm only 50, but businesses didn't work on Sundays. Isn't that just a weird thought? Why? Well, they didn't really know why, but they didn't do it because it was dishonorable. And it, it, our world has changed so dramatically in my lifetime. And so by the time I reach a maturity, when my voice is ready to speak forth boldly, our world is crumbling around me. And it's like, God, what, hey, couldn't you give me an easier audience than this? These guys don't even want to hear truth. In fact, they, they're going to yell out, crucify him, if I do speak it clearly. God, I don't, hey, I don't like my Wessex. The pursuit of the knowledge of God is neglected. The hunger for truth, the level of ignorance of the scriptures, oh, I mean, we've never had more access to the truth of God's word, and yet, has, has there ever been a time with more of a lackluster drive towards it? 
I mean, even in this room, we all can feel it. We have access to everything, all knowledge throughout history, and yet we have no passion to seek out God's mind. What's happened to us? The government hostile to Christ. Oh, what a rotten time to be alive when the government is now hostile and it's gone woke on us. It's like, oh, hey, this is when we get assigned. This is our Wessex, right? Now, you're, you're hearing me say something I actually don't believe, and that is that I'm making it sound like I'm complaining about it. Technically, if you know me well, you know that I love the time in which I live. I love my Wessex. I love the challenges of my Wessex. But just play along with me for a little bit. I'm trying to give that human side response because that is a supernatural work of grace inside of me, that I see my Wessex as lovely. I see it as a great opportunity. Not everyone does, and that's why I'm having a message like this. It's high time we wake up and realize that we have something precious. We have an opportunity to show the greatness of God in our generation. So the church is debased and devoid of power. Oh, what an assignment this is. And his nation, oh, my nation, speaking of my nation, this is Eric, his nation is ravaged by a fearful, unseen enemy. Palpable. Middle March of 2020, something changed in our nation. It was like a light switch. And I don't know how many of you felt it, and I don't know if it's just me that feels things like this, but I felt a palpable evil step across a line and boldly mock the church of Jesus Christ. And I, I, I actually sensed a movement of fear against our nation. Now, the, maybe the reason I feel it is because I spend so much of my life literally shoving fear back. I do not let fear come into my living room. And so when I see literally so many people around me allowing fear into their living room, it was like, it was thick and dense to me. It's like, what's going on here? I, I mean, I don't fear this pandemic. Why would I do that? Haven't you studied Christian history? It's the Christians that have no fear. In a time of plague, they have no fear. They're the ones that literally rise up and help all the people with the plague. And yet we suddenly are participating in the fear. The church Church is shutting down all over the place, not knowing exactly what to do. We were thrown off balance. It's like dust in our eyes. We couldn't see straight. So I am sensing this palpable meltdown of strength at a very crucial time. This is what I inherited. This is my Wessex, probably fairly similar to yours. We live in the same generation. But what are we going to do with it? So what did Alfred inherit? It may sound romantic to be a king, but in 872 Wessex, it was the job no sane man would want. Alfred inherited an inoperative and ineffective military system. This is quite the list, by the way. A territory of unwalled cities. A coinage that was not respected or valued. So in other words, their monetary system, their pennies, had about 20% silver in them. And so all of Europe sort of mocked Wessex coins because they're not worth anything. And so, well, their military was a you know, ridiculous disaster. The Vikings come in, it would take their military system two weeks to respond. Well, the Vikings were out of that city, had plundered it, raped, kidnapped, pillaged, done all their dirty deeds in one day. So two weeks delay 
is a little slow for what we're needing right now, Alfred. What's going on with your military? He's like, this is what I inherited. This is what my dad passed down to my, his sons and which got passed down to me. This is what we're inheriting too. I mean, you know, the enemy can look at you and go, boy, you stink at what you're doing. Look at you. Your generation is worse off now that you started preaching the gospel. You're like looking around going, well, I'm not the one that wanted it to be like this. I'm just trying to stand up and do something. An illiterate people. Could you imagine an entire nation, including its rulers and its nobles that don't even know how to read? They don't know how to read. Now, we're not used to a culture like that. But this is like going back to a barbarian age. You see, Latin actually used to be fluently read on this island. It seemed like every book was in Latin back in those days. And they don't speak Latin. They definitely don't read Latin. They don't even read their Anglo-Saxon language. They don't have any schools in this nation. And so this is what Alfred is inheriting. A language without any system of learning and no books. There is no books in their language either. So even if they wanted to read, there's no books. That makes it challenging, okay? It's a nation of confused confused laws and uncertain consequences. So what's the law in this one? We're not exactly sure. So what happens to me if I break this uncertain law? We don't exactly know. You could try and find out, and maybe this judge will be nice to you, maybe this one won't. In other words, it was an uncertain, unstable situation. If any of you are parents, you know that there's nothing worse than a mom saying, don't do this, and the dad saying, I don't mind if you do. And that's the same thing that Alfred is inheriting. It's uncertain. Number seven, it's a people stuck in their unhealthy traditions of defeat. Hey, don't change anything, Alfred. We like it the old way. This is the way it's always been. My granddad lived this way. His great-granddad lived this way. I mean, this is just the way it's always been. Burp, scratch. In other words, they don't want to change. Number eight, a once Christian culture that have forgotten its amazing past. And they can't even read about it to find out. Number nine, an enemy that wanted to eat him and his people for lunch. How would you like to inherit that? And number 10, an enemy that was stronger than him and more ready to fight. This is a rough start if you're a king, and this is what you're inheriting. It's a rough start if you're a Christian, and you give your life radically to Jesus, and you're like, okay, Jesus, I want to be your servant. And then you look out at the world, and you're like, oh, Wow. I mentioned this, I don't know if it was this last week. It seems like it's fairly fresh. It could even be in the Daily Thunder series, but I was talking about Don Richardson. Leslie has been going through uh, Peace Child and Lords of the Earth and listening to a lot of Don Richardson messages, so it's in my head uh, lately. And one of the things I remember about Peace Child is Don Richardson is going to come. It's in the, what we know is Indonesia right now. It's called Irian Jaya. And uh, the, the Dutch East Indies. And so when he went to, into this tribe, they allowed him to come in because he had medical supplies and you know, they wanted to trade with him. So they were, they were pleasant with him and they allowed him to learn their language. Not every tribe down there would do that. Some would just kill you and eat you, right? So this is a pretty uh, devilish uh, area uh, of the world and it was very ungodly. And so Don Richardson is learning their language and he's putting together the gospel. That's his number one thing is he wants to be able to communicate to them the word of God. And he wants to share with them the gospel of Jesus. And after a long time, he finally learns their language well enough to be able to compile this and to be able to present it for the first time. 
And so could you imagine how exciting that would be? You have this uh, people that has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're going to be the one to introduce them after a long time of study. And so he shares the story, and they're so excited. They're so amazed. But there's something wrong with their amazement. They're not amazed with Jesus. They're amazed with Judas. Judas is their hero. So after hearing the whole gospel, they actually see Judas as the hero. Why? Because the greatest virtue in their culture is betrayal and the art of betrayal. And wow, he is good at that. And as a result, you can imagine what Don Richardson is feeling. Uh-oh, what did I inherit? <laughs> and in a sense, I remember when he made the statement in the book, Peace Child, that maybe on earth he had the hardest audience because they were predisposed to reject Jesus as the hero, as the rescuer. And I had this, the thought, Leslie and I sort of conferred after that. It's like, that's the way we feel in our generation. I feel like the generation that we have been assigned is predisposed to throw out the good news. It's like, oh, I already know that. Get out of here. That's a hard audience. It's a tough nut to crack. And yet this is our assignment. Why is Alfred considered great? So I'm going to read you this inscription. Remember how I said I had portions of it that were lifted out? Just listen to this, and you'll understand what history has declared him and why he's been declared as great. Alfred found learning dead, and he restored it. Education neglected, and he revived it. The laws powerless, and he gave them force. The church debased, and he raised it. The land ravaged by a fearful enemy from which he delivered it. Alfred's name shall live as long as mankind shall respect the past. Well, that's pretty impressive. So if there was a monument made to you, what would it say? It could mention all the things that you faced in the generation you inherited, even the challenges you faced personally, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your physical health, whether it's in your finances. You know, and he arrived poor. He arrived an orphan. He arrived, arrived abused. Yet, what did you do with the power of Jesus Christ in response to it? You see, you have inherited a Wessex. It may not be an ideal situation, but there's no good story. Could you imagine how boring the story would be? It's like, so what did Alfred inherit? Oh, a perfect country. What did he do with it? Went to sleep. It's like, how boring is that? There's nothing to change. We have inherited something challenging. Praise God. This is the, this is the stuff that makes the best storylines. Grandpa Obendorf's motto. Okay, so my... My granddad's name was, his last name is Obendorf, isn't that? And then I, so we have Ludi and Obendorf. Could you imagine the two options I had? You know, it's a, it's a rough, rough, there's my Wessex right there. You know, the name, <laughs> the name Ludi. I remember in, uh, in college, this Japanese foreign exchange student comes up to me and I said my name and she laughed. She goes, in Japan, Ludi me nerd. <laughs> so... My mom's maiden name was Obendorf, but Grandpa Obendorf, who's a big farmer, uh, and he had a motto, and this is it. It's pretty profound, guys. I know it's going to sound rather simple, but just think about it. If there's a dirty dish in the sink, this is how he talked, too. If there's a dirty dish in the sink, wash it. You see, he's basically saying, if there's something that needs to be done, do it. 
You know what a dirty dish needs? It needs to be washed. Don't just keep walking past it and leave it there. Hey, it's dirty. It needs to be washed. You know how many times we walk past our dirty dishes and we allow them to pile up on the counter? The higher they pile up, they notice that you get, the more paralyzed you get in dealing with your pile. So his philosophy was when you get a dirty dink, in, dirty dink, <laughs> a dirty dink in the sish. Uh, so when you, when you get a dirty dish in the sink, just deal with it right then. Just get on top of it. Stay on top of it. And when you stay on top of it, you actually begin to change the environment of your home, and you begin to see a new atmosphere set. The famous phrase of the dying man. Now, the reason I'm saying this is if someone is saying this, they're dying. It is it is like a wheeze of soul. It is a decrepit uh, evidence of the soul that something is wrong, falling to pieces, flailing about. It is not healthy and strong. What is that phrase? That's just the way it is. There is nothing we can do about it. Have you ever heard that, that statement? I, I have grown up in a generation that says that statement. In the church of Jesus Christ, that is one of the most common statements that I've heard in my growing up years. When I would say, well, God says that I'm supposed to have peace that passes understanding. Well, yeah. well yes, I know it says that, Eric, but you just need to accept the fact that that's not the way it actually works. Well, I don't accept that. That's ridiculous. Why would I accept that? If God's word says it, I'm going to believe God's word and not your pathetic one over here. I don't care what this person has to say. I care what God's word says. But you have to fight in your soul. You cannot allow this lethargy to overtake you. Do not allow the deadness of our culture to creep inside of your living room and begin to deaden you. You have been given an assignment. And I guarantee you, in, in Alfred's day, there was no way that he could do what he pulled off. I mean, it is so impossible. It's like, just accept the fact that the Vikings rule Wessex. Okay, there's no way. You, you have like 32 men with you on a swamp island. They have tens of thousands of Vikings, and they're coming in by the day in the longboats. They are ruling this country. Just give up, Alfred. I refuse to accept that. I am king of Wessex. This is my trust. This is my inheritance. I am going to fight to get it back. This territory has always been used for the glory of Christ. It will continue to be. Whatever that fight is, you need it inside of you. That's why this is about revival. You see, this is what starts the whole concept of revival inside of us. It's a fight to say no more, draw a line in the sand, this stops now. There has to be a grr inside of you. You cannot accept the defeat around you. God has a purpose for your life and when you accept that and you rise up with that growl, world changed. The hunger, the drive to change all this. What would you do if you inherited the kingship of Wessex in the year 872? Would you flee? Or would you fight? I just want to let that linger in your soul. Now, you don't live in 872, and it might sound more romantic with all the distance between us and that time. But if you've gone through this series, you feel the evilness of the evil. You feel the yuckiness of the yuck. 
it, it helps to sort of get closer to it, and that's why a long series is actually very helpful, because you begin to wonder, what would I do? And I've wondered that as I've been going through this. Would I stand my ground like Alfred stood his ground? Oh, Lord, I want to stand my ground right where I'm at right now. Obviously, I don't live back in 872. I live in 2021. But I have reason in my generation to flee, to run, to hide, to be quiet, to be silenced. Because I don't want to pick a fight with a more powerful foe. And to speak would be to do exactly that. What am I here for? If you guys had a vote and you could decide, should Eric shut up or speak up? Isn't it funny? You know how to vote for my life. What if we were to turn it and have each one of us walk up here and have a vote? Okay, you don't want me to shut up. You want me to stand up. You want me to speak up. Whoa, what do you think the Holy Spirit wants for you? We want the church back. To get the church back, each one of us is going to have to agree with the Spirit of God. And say, okay, it's not just Eric that needs to speak up and stand up. I guess I need to join him. You see, we're all in this together. Technically, it's not that fun standing alone. So I invite you (laughs) to stand up with me. That's the same thing Alfred was dealing with. He's going to call his nation to Egbert Stone. Doesn't that sound like a, a name of a book or a movie? Meet me at Egbert Stone, which is the place of his granddad's great victory in the past. And he is going to rally there on the day of Pentecost, purposefully chosen because that's the day in which power entered into the people to do the work of God on this earth. And he is going to say, if you're ready to fight, if you want to stand with Alfred, meet at Egbert Stone, May 6th. And guess what? A nation arrives. You see, sometimes you just need to stand up, and it rallies those around you. Revival is like a fire, and when one person says, light me on fire, Lord, it's funny how that fire can jump to the person next to him. When you confess your sin, it's funny how that conviction can jump to the person next to you, and it can spread. But it oftentimes starts with one Alfred who says, enough is enough. Meet me at Egbert's stone. Are you in? Do you want to fight? Do you want to be under the Viking rule? All right, didn't think so. Meet me at Egbert's stone. Psalm 81.10. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Uh, George Mueller marks his spiritual life by scriptures. And this is one of the first scriptures in his biography that he is going to point to where he could tell his whole story based on scriptures in his life. And this is one of the first. This idea of open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So how many of us are opening our mouth, number one, and saying, God, you have something for me. I want it. But there's a difference between opening your mouth and opening your mouth wide. Because if you knew that God had something and the bigger you opened your mouth, the wider you open it, the more you get, what would you do? you would be willing to sort of come up with some contraption to keep your mouth open because you want all that God has. And that's exactly what George Mueller is going to begin to process. He's like, I'm not opening my my mouth wide enough. Lord, I want to open my mouth wider. To the degree you open wide, he fills. 
only three arrows strikes, the strange story of Joash and Elisha. So if you guys remember this story, you have at the parting of Elijah, when Elijah is going to go up in that chariot of fire, the whirlwind and the chariot of fire, a very interesting story in and of itself, there's going to be a statement. My father, my father, the horsemen, the chariots of, and the horsemen thereof. No, I can't remember the statement. The chariots of, and the horsemen thereof. Why? I can't, what is that? The chariots of Israel? Okay, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And so at this, Elisha is now dying. And so Joash comes in and says the same phrase. It's sort of like, what is the phrase that you said? Because Elisha is going to get a double portion of Elijah. And so Joash is going to come in, and he knows Elisha has something for him. So he sort of like tries the incantation and tries the little phrase, and uh, that wasn't the secret. And Elisha seems to know what Joash wants. Joash, you know, king of Israel, there was never really a good king of Israel, so if that gives you any indication of how this is going to turn out. However, he wants something. He knows that Elisha has it. And since he's the only one there at the death, it's like, hey, maybe it, it can be mine. Whatever Elisha got from Elijah, I want it. And so there he is, and you're going to have the unique story that's going to unfold here. And he's going to say, take the arrows. And he's going to take the arrows. I'm going to just read this part. Then he said, take the arrows. This is 2 Kings 13, 18 through 19. So he took them, speaking of Joash, took the arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God, speaking of Elisha, was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till it, you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Doesn't that story just bother you? There's something about it. First of all, I'm concerned that I'm only going to strike it once. Have you ever had that? Like, if you heard someone say, strike the ground, okay. And then, I mean, if he was mad at Joash, how much more is he going to be with us? Because, I mean, striking three times is not what I would have thought of even. So I'm actually sort of impressed with Joash. And yet what you see here is a principle. Open your mouth wide. Is that it? Okay, that's all you get. You see, the God of the universe is leaning in saying, you want to change your Wessex? Yes, Lord. Open your mouth wide. He hands you arrows and says, strike the ground. What do you mean? Strike the ground. How determined are you? to see your Wessex changed. Do you really want this? And if so, you strike the ground. How many times? Until he puts his hand upon your arm and says, enough. How long do you knock on the neighbor's door until he gets up to give you bread? Do you, do you just knock three times? Oh, I knocked. I already did my knocking. You knock until he gets up. How long, if you're the, the widow... Uh, do you irritate the judge and come begging to him? Just three times? Is that our number? You do it until the judge changes his mind and sides with you. And this is actually Jesus' model. This is what he tells us. He says, you want to change your Wessex, you have to get aggressive with it. You have to go after it. You have to rouse that soul, gather your soul together with a determination to not stop, to not relent, to persevere until... See, some of you, I'm sticking a chocolate shake in front of you with a straw even on your lips. You're like, oh, it's just like so hard to slurp that. There is a dryness about you, and you don't want it there, but you don't know how to get it away. Your lips are dry, and just, you just can't pucker around that straw, and it's right there. 
God's saying, I got all you need. Open your mouth wide. In this case, suck hard, and you'll get what is in that. And you don't necessarily have the oomph to do it. I know that feeling. I've had that feeling before where I know what God wants, but I'm lacking something. I'm lacking something in the core of my being. It's, like, it's not because I don't esteem it. It's because I, I feel weakened. I'm in a weakened state where I've lost the wind in my sail. And so what do you need to do? You need God to get some wind back in there. You need God to moisten those lips. You need God to give you the appetite again. So what do you do? You go after the appetite. Maybe you're struggling to do the slurping, so what you do is, Lord, give me appetite. Moisten my lips. Whatever metaphor is going to help you in this one. You need the strength again. I guarantee you God wants to give it to you. I guarantee you he's not like, oh, no, no, I'm not giving you any strength. No, no, I don't want to moisten your lips to slurp that chocolate shake. He desires you to be hungry, to be thirsty for righteousness. He desires you to be strong, to strike the ground over and over and over again. And so even when you feel weak, the, the number one time we need to leap for joy is when we're falsely accused, and there's no other time that is harder than when you're falsely accused. Because when you're falsely accused, your knees go weak and your stomach empties, right? You just feel totally zapped. And God says, yeah, right now, leap for joy. See, he knows that physically speaking, you don't have it. But spiritually speaking, you do. You have all that you need to spiritually respond as he would ask of you. But it's not found in your pockets. It's found by faith in his pockets. Your job is to go where that strength is found, and it's not found in you. You keep checking your lips and they're dry. You keep checking your appetite. Have you checked his? Because he has everything you need right now to be revived and to be strengthened. Genesis 32, 26, and he, God, said, let me go for the day breaks. Remember this scene, the wrestling with Jacob? But he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob is going to get a new name because of this whole transaction. It's Israel. All history hinges on this name Israel, the people of God. So what are the people of God? Eh, right there. That story describes them. It's determined. They don't strike the ground three times. They hold on until they get what only God can give. Until Wessex is changed, they will not let go. This is where it starts. Are you accepting the defeat? Or are you willing to do something about it? James 4, 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. First, we say, Lord, here I am. And then we bop the devil in the nose. We need his power, and with that power, we strike back. We hit the Vikings, we push it out, we change the system. You have been given a Wessex, and it might be lingering in a very uh, weakened state. But that's why, as believers, God's going to say, and I'm ready to do impossible things right now in your circumstances. 
James 4, 7. This is adapted to sort of be the Viking version. Submit to God, not to your circumstances. Resist the devil. Don't resist the grace God is ready to supply. You see, we have a tendency to resist the grace God is ready to supply and to submit to our circumstances. It's the exact opposite. Submit to God, not to your circumstances. Resist the devil. Don't resist the grace God is ready to supply. And the devil and all his Viking hordes will flee from you. Scripture. Alfred struck the ground an uncomfortable amount of times. It is. When I study his story, I feel chagrined, ashamed. It's like, what? how did he know all this? This is in an illiterate age where to understand Scripture was actually very difficult because it was in Latin. And so he would have bishops who would literally read it to him and explain it to him. He wanted to know. He was so thirsty, like part soil, just for, for the moisture of the Word. And he, when he learned it, he just applied it. It's like, oh, okay, here's what we're going to do then in Wessex. This is rather extraordinary. We have all the Word. We can read it. We can memorize it. We can understand the whole thing, and we're not doing it. Alfred is like craving just the understanding of what God's mind is for his nation. And when he gets it, he's like, all right, we're doing that. Well, uh, sir, uh, that would violate all tradition of Wessex. I mean, no one's ever done that before. Okay, this will be the first then. Let's get it done. He changes the entire nation. So Dr. Merkel, which this is the book that originally inspired me to do this. It's called The White Horse King. I highly uh, recommend it. When the king had searched the tumultuous history of early medieval Britain, he had happened upon descriptions of a golden age, a time when the kings ruled in peace. These were times when the people were moral, with little crime and great respect for their rulers. These were times when not only were their shores free from the raids of pagan plunderers, but the people actually advanced their own territories and extended their borders. And these were times when the Anglo-Saxon tribes were Christian tribes. And not just in name only, but faithfully worshiping the God of the Bible with a vibrant and fruitful faith. And the clearest testimony that Alfred saw for their eagerness to worship the Christian God was their dogged perseverance in the discipline of Christian learning. But things had radically changed during the two centuries that had intervened between the golden age of the Anglo-Saxon church, described by the venerable Bede. I don't know actually how to pronounce that, Bede, Bede. He's an ancient writer from 200 years earlier. And the time of Alfred. The English church had grown complacent, indolent, and lethargic. Boy, does that I'm going to read that again just in case it could strike a, uh, a, a note of remembrance for you of what we're going through. The English church had grown complacent, indolent, and lethargic. Numbed by their prosperity, their love of learning grew cold, and their interest in Christian studies died off altogether. England, through her intellectual lethargy, was slowly devolving into a pagan nation, a people who neither knew nor served the Christian God. It is almost impossible for us intellectually to look out at our, our country and say, wait a minute, you've been given so much, you've been given so many opportunities, you've been given liberty, and you're literally wanting to throw it away you're, you have all the truth. You could, God, look what God has done for us. He has shed his grace upon us. And yet you are going to throw that in the trash and exchange it out. By the way, this is the history of the Old Testament. I mean, this is literally what the people of Israel are going to do over and over again. It is shocking. And that's what England was doing then, and that's what we're doing now. 
Dr. Merkel continues, the Anglo-Saxons had become an unfaithful people dwelling on formerly sacred Christian soil. Was it any wonder that, that God had raised up the Viking scourge or the lions of Israel? The lions of Israel is a, re- a reference back to the days of, uh, of uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, when he came in and took Israel and removed the people from the land, and as a result, it was desolate, and they brought in foreign nations to live there, and God sent the lions in uh, to ravage the countryside. So that's what he's saying here. The Vikings scourged the lions of Israel to strike them and remind them of their duties to God. Alfred concluded that the Vikings were not the cause of England's overthrow. Listen to this. Alfred concluded that the Vikings were not the cause of England's overthrow. They were the result The Anglo-Saxons' own lethargic apostasy had been the cause of the fall of the various Anglo-Saxon nations. This is what Alfred himself is going to reason. This is what we get when we turn from God, O nation. So what do we need to do to fix that? Turn towards God. And that will solve our Viking dilemma. Because the only reason they're there is because we have forgotten our God. Dr. Merkel continues, if Alfred was to have a victorious defense policy, clearly, clearly armies and burrs were not enough. In my last message, I went through their new burr system, which he is going to uh, implement, but that's a different message. If Wessex wanted to be successful in her ongoing struggle with the plundering Danes, the Vikings, then the nation must devote itself to a revival of Christian learning and Christian worship. It had been nearly a full century since the Viking plague had begun with the first tragic raid on the holy island of Lindisfarne. After that disaster, Alcuin had written to the British church urging them to consider this raid as a scourge from God, sent to awaken the Anglo-Saxons from spiritual lethargy. Now, nearly 100 years later, the king of Wessex, Alfred, finally took this warning to heart and set about reviving Christian learning and worship throughout his land. So what we are dealing with obviously is not in the year 878 to what we're going to be running into is 880 AD when Alfred begins to implement radical change of his life, of his nation. But we are in a time of very amazing parallel. And there are many of us that have been handed arrows and God says, strike. We've been handed a spoon or maybe the straw, however you want to look at it, and he says, open your mouth wide so I can fill it. And what we need to deliberately do is respond to the grandeur and the power of our God and stop limiting him. Stop believing the lie of the devil. Most of us have more confidence in the power of the enemy to hold us in captivity and in defeat and in sin than we do faith, have faith in our God to deliver us from that enemy. And that is an inappropriate use of the faith that you have been given. Do not believe and trust in the devil's power over you. You trust in God who is able to deliver you. This is what we do as Christians. So you take your Wessex and you rise up and push back in the authority given you in Christ Jesus. Submit to God, resist the devil, 
and he will flee. It is time for a revival that starts in each of us as individuals, and it spreads like wildfire. We cannot expect it to spread like wildfire if we don't allow it to first start inside of us. Father, only you can do this work. This is not a work of men. This is a work of God. Lord, stir in us a hunger. Stir in us a growl. Stir in us a fight. Moisten our lips. Increase our appetite. Open our mouth wide. Do whatever is necessary, Lord, to equip us with your grace so that we could respond to this and not just stare at this message blankly. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're all gathered together this week for a reason, and I pray that you would reveal to us what that reason is. And I pray that revival would be a big part of it. Lord, we love you and submit to you. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.